Turn, if you would, to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans. We are almost done. Maybe two or three more lessons after today, and we will finish Romans. Two weeks ago, we started the 15th chapter. Last week, I was in uh, Colorado visiting my daughter and her husband up there. It was cooler and beautiful, but uh, I learned something that I never knew before. Many of you all probably knew this. You know, you see a grove of aspen trees. That's all one tree. They all have the same roots. They're all connected. In fact, the largest living organism in the world is an aspen grove. I didn't know that. They're not individual trees. Hmm. Learn something new every day. Two weeks ago, we started chapter 15. It began, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We had a discussion about what it meant to please ourselves, the fact that some are more mature in the faith, some are less mature in the faith, and those who are more mature in the faith are to work to help those who are less mature in the faith to mature. They are not to look after their own interests. They are not to look down on those who are less mature in the faith. And you know this is true. I mean, any body, any group, any collection of people, there are going to be those who need to instruct the others. It isn't arrogant to think that. It's just a fact. The arrogance is the part that you have to fight. The arrogance is the part that says... I'm more mature, therefore I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's the part that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us, don't do that. So, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We are called to help each other mature in the faith. The reality is, even those who are mature have areas in their lives that need work on. So Christ has given us the body, that is us collectively, to help us collectively mature in our faith. That's what we're here to help each other to do. So we made it somewhere down to, I think, about verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another if they're just like you. No, it didn't say that. Welcome one another if they're just as mature as you are. No. In fact, that's what the passage is definitely speaking against. We are to welcome each other into the body because we are connected with Christ. Those who are of the body of Christ are our brothers and sisters, regardless of their race, ethnic background, economic background, nationality, fill in the blank. And we are to welcome one another. And from this, Paul is going to lead into a discussion about his ministry, which is a ministry to the Gentiles. So we're going to talk today about Paul's ministry to the Gentile community. And he leads into that by saying, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. 
Who are the circumcised? The Jewish community. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he goes on to quote four Old Testament verses. God fulfilled his promises to the Jewish community. Why is that important? If Paul is the minister to the Gentile community, why should Paul, the minister to the Gentile community, give a flip whether God had or had not fulfilled his promises to the Jewish community? I've told you in here before, I had a friend who was a Lebanese Christian, and I guess I could put that in quotes or something, but we'll worry about that later. And he, for the life of him, did not understand why we, as American Christians, gave a flip about the Jews. I mean, they had their chance, they muffed it, end of story, go away. That was his belief. But the reality is, if God did not keep his promises to the Jewish community, when God told Abraham, I am going to make of you a great nation, the seed, your seed, singular, is going to be the salvation of all the nations, that is, Jesus Christ. If God did not fulfill his promises to Abraham, how would we know that he would fulfill its promises to us. Now, did the Jewish community rebel at certain times? Yes. Did God allow them to suffer because of it? Yes. Do we rebel at certain times? Yes. Does God allow us to suffer for it? Yes. Does God reject us? No. We saw in chapter what? Chapter 9, 10, and 11, a discussion of the fact that God still has a plan for the Jewish community. Now, at some point, they're going to have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but hey, they're going to get there. God fulfilled his promises to the Jewish community. Why? so that we would know that he will fulfill his promises to us. To show God's truthfulness. God speaks truth. You know, sometimes I say something that I think is true, but because of my limited knowledge, I find out later it's not really true. Well, God doesn't find out later things that he didn't know now. So when God speaks, God speaks truthfully. And where do we have the word of God today? In the scripture. When God made a promise to Abraham, God kept and will keep that promise to Abraham. When God makes a promise to us, God keeps and will keep that promise to us. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is 2 Samuel 
or Psalms. You can take your pick. It's quoted in both. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Why is he quoting these passages? He's doing it to demonstrate that God's plan from the beginning was to bring salvation to the Jewish, I mean, to the Gentile communities. Wait a minute. Didn't he talk about, doesn't Paul talk about this mystery that the Gentiles and the Jews are going to be combined together? And he refers to that as a mystery? Yes, the mystery that Paul talks about elsewhere in his writings is the mystery of the church that we Gentiles, Jews, are all be combined into the body of Christ. The fact that God was going to save the Gentile community was not the mystery. Throughout the Old Testament, God had told the nation of Israel, you are going to bless the world. Now, at times they weren't very interested in blessing the world. At times, they were more interested in protecting the Jewish community than worrying about the Gentile community. But God's plan was still there from the beginning. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. The Gentiles will rise up and praise God just like the Jewish community. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, who are his people, the Jewish community. So the Gentiles will be rejoicing with the Jewish people before God. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. The Gentile community will be praising God. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, to in him will the Gentiles hope. Who is he? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jewish born, Jewish raised, Jewish in his flesh, came to bring hope to the entire world. That is the promise that we have. And that ought to be rather important to us because I would suspect most of us are good old-fashioned Gentiles. The promises were fulfilled that we and the Jewish community could share in the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came to pay the penalty for our sins. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You can tell he's kind of getting to the end because he keeps throwing out these statements like it would be the conclusion of a letter and then he has a few more things to say. Good Baptist preacher. May you abound in hope. Two weeks ago, we talked about hope. We spent some time reminding ourselves that hope is more than just wishful thinking. Hope is the assurance 
that God who gave promises to Abraham fulfilled those promises and that the same God made promises to us that he who began a good work in us will complete it. And if he kept the promises to Abraham, he will keep his promises to us. Hope is the calm assurance that the promises of God will be fulfilled. We had an interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago. You know, we talk about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in love that we forget about the faith and the hope. You need them all. Then why does it say faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love? Well, there's some discussion about when we get to heaven whether you will actually need hope. When you're sitting there at the feet of God and you see the risen Lord and you see the community, all your hope is going to be fulfilled. But love will still be there. Some discussion. I'm not sure what hope means on the other side of death. But on this side of death, while we are in this world, with the problems of this world and the circumstances that pop up every day in our lives, hope is necessary to continue on. And everything in the world is trying to squish that hope. That's why in two weeks ago lesson and today's lesson, he continues to talk about hope. What is the basis of our hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What is the basis of your hope? The election in a week and a half? You're doomed. (laughs) Sorry. Your sports team, your sports team winning some big turn, you're doomed. Believing the commercials that you see on TV, you're doomed. If your hope is based on something other than the promises of God as revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, then you are in trouble. It is interesting that the Holy Spirit is referred to elsewhere as the comforter. What is the job of the comforter? The obvious answer is to give us comfort. How does he do that? By giving us hope. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us hope. That's the introduction. It's actually supposed to be part of less than two weeks ago, but we didn't quite make it. Surprise, surprise. Verse 14, Paul begins to discuss his ministry. And for the rest of the chapter, it's just really kind of uh, biographical, autobiographical on Paul's part, talking about why he does what he does. And then chapter 16 is kind of the conclusion where he thanks everybody for their help and gives a few blessings at the end. So, verse 14 of chapter 15. 
I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all hope, and able to instruct one another. Paul has never been to the church at Rome. He's been wandering around Asia Minor, and as we'll see in a moment, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has a desire to go to Rome. We'll see that in just a moment. But he's never been there. But he has heard about the church that is in Rome. And what he has heard is good. I don't have any complaints, he's telling them. I myself am satisfied with where you are in the faith. This is interesting because this isn't true of a lot of Paul's letters. Go read, I don't know, First and Second Corinthians. It's like a list of, okay, I heard you have this problem. I heard you have this problem. Let's talk about this problem. Here's a doctrine that you need to know because you're, you get the picture. But Paul is not saying that to the church at Rome. I've heard about you, and I am satisfied that you are growing in your faith. Life is good. What makes him think that things are going well? That you yourselves are full of goodness, full of all knowledge, and are able to teach one another. Three characteristics that he lists that tells him that things are going rather well. Number one, you are full of goodness. What does it mean to be full of goodness? This isn't a hard question. Huh? Kind? Pardon? Considerate? Somebody over here? Be a do-gooder? That puts it in a really positive light. Compassion. The rich young ruler comes to Christ, says, good teacher, what must I do? Christ looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Don't you know that there's only one good and that is God? Now, it's an interesting discussion because what he's saying to the rich young ruler is you did well because I'm God, but that was not the point. There is none good but God. God defines what good is. God, having created us, defines what good means for us as created beings. God tells us what we ought to do. We go do that, and we're doing good. What has God told us to do? Be compassionate. Be considerate. Be loving toward one another. You can just start backing up a few chapters. Show deference to those who have opinions that are different than us. Help those who are weak. Present our bodies as living sacrifice. Go back to chapter 12. Remember that list of 20-something items that we're supposed to do? Goodness is defined by the character of God. And when we, as created beings, mirror the character of God, we are being good. Now, today, that does carry with it 
certain negative connotations. Why is that? Well, first off, you have the problem of the Pharisees who were being good, so they thought, but they were doing it to glory and honor themselves. There is such a thing as bad motives for doing good things. We see that in the scripture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those who do good things are of necessity doing them out of bad motives. It's interesting because doing good with the right motive is, in reality, the only way you can do good in the eyes of God. I can fake it to you. Okay? I can do a good deed so you think that my deed and my heart are doing the right thing. I can fake it before you, but I cannot fake it before God. Why? Because God knows the condition of my heart just as well, if not better, than the act itself. So to be good means that you're doing the right thing and also doing it with the right attitude. And Paul says, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, y'all are full of goodness. You are showing compassion to those who need it. You are giving comfort to the weak. You are doing what God would have you to do. Number one, you're full of goodness. Number two, you're full of knowledge. What knowledge do we need to be full of? That's a strange question. You, huh? The scripture. There's all kinds of things to learn. Every day we ought to be learning something. I learned about aspen trees. I learned that on the cog train on the way to the top of Pikes Peak, there is a hydroelectric power plant, the oldest operating one in, I think, North America. And there is a house right there where the caretaker lives to take care of the hydroelectric plant that services 200 homes. Wouldn't that be a cool job? The driveway to get to the caretaker's house is 60 miles long. The neighbors are not coming to borrow a cup of sugar. We learn all kinds of interesting things all the time, and that's good. But what is the knowledge that is necessary for us to know? The knowledge that is necessary is the knowledge that God has revealed to us about himself, about his creation, about how we are to be saved, how we are to live our lives. This is the knowledge that we need to have. The fear of the Lord, the book of Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It also says it's the beginning of wisdom. We can have a long discussion about the difference between wisdom and knowledge, but we're not going there today. Yes, ma'am.
Uh huh. flow out of us. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting discussion. Which comes first, the goodness or the knowledge? And in my usual cryptic way of answering questions, yes. The scripture is clear. There are things that you will not know until you've done. Until you have stepped out on faith, there are certain truths that you will not know. There are also certain things you will not do until you know. Which comes first? Exactly. We study the Scripture. We apply the Scripture to our life. And the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And we do, and we learn, and we do... And we learn, and that is my understanding of the process of sanctification. I, Paul, have confidence that you are full of goodness. Now, we can have a long discussion. No, he's not saying they're perfect. Okay? If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But if we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. And that's part of the Christian life too. You are full of goodness and you are full of knowledge. Does that mean they know everything? No. But they know what they need to know. And they are continuing to learn what they need to continue to learn in order to know what they need to know and to do what they need to do. Whatever that means. Full of goodness, full of knowledge. What is it that hinders us today from being full of goodness and full of knowledge? Now, it's interesting. Paul is making this comment about them. We could kind of argue that maybe it's a little arrogant if I stood up here today and told you I was full of goodness and full of knowledge. You might think that I'm full of something else. (laughs) But we won't go there. But Paul acknowledges the fact. Paul, halfway down the Mediterranean from where they are, has heard, has learned, and he knows they're doing what they ought to be doing. That's great. What is it that hinders us from being full of goodness and full of knowledge? This could have a whole long discussion. Let's encapsulate it just down to a little. Remember the parables of the sower and the seeds. Throws the seeds on the sidewalk, doesn't grow, it's too hard. Grows in the, throws it into the shallow, throws it into the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. And when Jesus is explaining what the thorns are, he says, the worries and cares of this world choke the life out of us. What is it that keeps us from being good and having the knowledge that we need? I would say in our society today, a lot of it has to do with distractions. There are lots of things to read other than your Bible. There are lots of things to do other than what God would have you to do. And some of these things aren't evil in and of themselves. They're simply distractions. Ultimately, what prevents us is sin. The choosing of something else 
before God. But Paul says, you are full of goodness and full of knowledge. And then he adds a third one that I think is kind of interesting. You are able to teach. That's an interesting one to me. What does it take? What qualifies you to be able to instruct one another? Knowledge of the scripture. That's the full of knowledge part. Somebody else. You can cheat. We did the full of knowledge part. (gasps) (laughs) Somebody's complaining about my lesson. (laughs) Full of goodness, full of knowledge, allows you to teach others. It is interesting, you go through the scripture and you see that there is a gift of teaching. Okay? If you look down the, spiritual, the, the list of spiritual gifts, there is one of, you know, teacher. But you also see that all of us collectively are told to teach others. I mean, there's very specific categories. You get over in Paul's letters and he says, Older men teach the younger men this. Older women teach the younger women this. Very specific. There are instructions, parent, teach your children this. Mature, teach people this. Be ready to share what God has done in your life at any moment. We are to be full of goodness, full of knowledge, so that we are able to teach those around us. I might add one little aside that just is interesting to me to prepare us to teach. Do you remember that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, why do you worry about that speck in your brother's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye? And most of us today take that passage and go, okay, let's stop right there. I'm not going to tell you about the speck because I, being humble, know that I've got a two-by-four stuck in my eye. I'm done. Let's stop. But that's not where the passage stops. The passage says, deal with the beam, deal with the two-by-four in your own eye so that you are then in a position to help the other person with the speck in their own eye. I don't know why this is doing this. To be ready to teach means that you have dealt with the beams that God has revealed to you because that's what gives you the patience, the understanding to help others with the specks that are in their eyes. I've used the illustration in here before. In fact, we used it just several weeks ago. You know, if you read about addictive behavior, you know, it's easy for me to look at you with your addictive behavior and say, stop it. Just don't do it. But if I have dealt with the addictive behavior in my life and used God's grace... 
I don't know what to do about this. We'll go to plan B. Are we there? Hello? <laughs> if I have dealt with the abuse in my own life, I mean the addiction in my own life, I am in a better position to help others. I have dealt with the beam, then I can help deal with the speck. As we walk the Christian walk, we begin to understand what we need the Holy Spirit to help us with, where we are called to work on our own through the power of the Holy Spirit, what God does, what we do, and we begin to understand that, and that's what puts us in a position to help teach other people. Each of us, full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to teach. And Paul says, I see these things in you, and that's good. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. While I look at you, church at Rome, and I say, it looks good. I don't have any complaints. I'm not going to write a letter bashing you for certain things. I do want to remind you of something. Those of us who have grown up in the church know that we need to be reminded of things that we ought to already have known. You know that. You know, we're getting angry at somebody. If we stopped and thought, we know the Bible says, don't be angry. But maybe we need somebody to walk along beside us and remind us of what we already know. And what Paul is writing to the church at Rome is to remind them of the grace of God and to remind them of the fact that the Gentile community are full members of the body of Christ. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What a job title that is. A minister, priestly service. Go back to the Old Testament. What does a priest do? Come on, this is easy. Officiates between man and God. He stands in the gap between God and the congregation. He offers sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, and he takes the word of God and communicates it from God to the people. He is the priest. Now, we know today that we collectively are priests. We collectively are called to minister to the people on God's behalf 
and to God on the people's behalf. We are a nation of priests. What does that mean? It means that we can enter the presence of God. This was denied the average person in the Jewish community in the Old Testament. So Paul says, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now to me it's just interesting that Paul would be chosen for this task. I mean, if you look at Paul and his life, and you think, why would I choose him to be the minister to the Gentile communities? It's almost a joke. You know, it's almost God has a really big sense of humor. I mean, you go find some racist person, and you say, you, you racist person, I'm going to make you a missionary to the middle of Africa. Go do it. Sure, why not? If there ever was a Jewish Jew, it was Paul. He had been born in the right family, gone to the right schools, read the right books, done the right things. He had been zealous in defending the Jewish faith against the upstart Christians. And God says, I'm going to convert you. And not only am I going to convert you, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And the first time one of them slaps a pork chop down in front of you, you're going to say, pass the gravy. (laughs) It's almost like God has a sense of humor. I mean, I can imagine God saving a good old-fashioned pagan and saying, I want you to share the gospel. to the." He could do that. Several hundred years after this, he's going to save Augustine, you know, as pagan as you could get, exceptionally well-educated, and Augustine is going to defend. God could do that. But God wanted someone to demonstrate to the church of Rome and to all the churches that the Jews and the Gentiles are combined together in the body of Christ. Yes, Lee. Yeah. He was enthusiastic about it. He was zealous for the sharing of the gospel. He had been converted by the power of God. And he shows up in these pagan, Gentile communities and says, I'm here as proof that God can save anybody. And let me share the gospel with you. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. What is the offering of the Gentiles? Huh. Chapter 12, verse 1. 
I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. He wants the Gentile community to be holy just like the Jewish community was called to be holy. Now, did the Jewish community do it? Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. That's the story. That's the history. I want the Gentile community to be instructed in the gospel so that they can present a sacrifice, an offering to God that is acceptable. That is Paul's job, is to minister to the Gentile community. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. He kind of sounds like he's being a little boastful, except for the fact he that acknowledges that whatever has happened has happened because of the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. I'm not going to talk about anything that I've done that wasn't done by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the Gentile community to Christ. What could have Paul have talked about? He could have talked about his background and other places he does talk about his background. But he talks about it to say, and all of that's worthless. There's lots of things Paul could boast about, but what he's going to boast about is what Christ is doing through him to bring the Gentile community to Christ. By word and by deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illicrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I have done it with signs and wonders. At this point, we could have a long discussion, but we're not going to do it because we've done it before, about the existence of signs and wonders today. We know for a fact that God gave miraculous gifts to the apostles to verify their ministry in the absence of the word of God that we have before us today. In the absence of the Holy Scripture, I come into town and I want you to know that I've been sent by God and God gives me the power to do some miraculous thing. And you go, wow. We as a church believe that those miraculous gifts, namely the gifts of healing and of speaking in tongues, passed away with the early church. Let's put the big caveat, though. Every time I've ever said this, I always add this comment, and that's God can do whatever God wants to do. He can. God is going to heal whom God wants to heal. And if God wants to reintegrate the gift of tongues so that I can speak to a French audience and they understand it in French and I don't know French, God can do that. But we have the scripture. We have the word of God before us which tells us who God is. And the signs and wonders aren't necessary 
to validate that word. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, before that day, nothing happened in the church. I mean, you had Christ doing his signs and wonders. You had his death, his resurrection, and then there was this gap where they didn't really know what to do. I mean, they'd seen the risen Lord, but God told them to wait until you receive a sign, and that is the day of Pentecost. And after that, they went and preached the gospel, and it's like I would go to the UN, and I had people from every nation of the world And I didn't have any translators, but I stand up and speak my good old Texas English, and you all all understand me. That was the miracle. Right. So, the signs and wonders that Paul used were driven by the Holy Spirit to validate his ministry wherever he went. So that from Jerusalem all the way around the... Asia Minor area, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, I don't think Paul right here is setting a universal standard for ministry. Paul is simply stating that his instructions were to go where the gospel had not been preached and start churches. He was looking for places where no believers had gone. And I've known people like this. You've known ministers, missionaries, whose desire, God-given desire, is to go places where no one has ever been. That's where I want to go. I don't believe that that's God's call to everyone, okay? The rest of us need to hear the gospel too. Paul's ministry, though, was to share the gospel to communities that had never heard it before. And he had wandered around Asia Minor, you know, Greece and what is today modern Turkey and up into Macedonia. He had wandered around that area forming churches. He would go into a community. He would stay for a while. He would start a church, and then he'd move on to the next one. And then later he'd write a letter to the last one, and that would be a book of the Bible, okay? That's where we get Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians. You get the picture. These were letters to the churches that Paul had started, The book of Romans is a little different because it is a letter to a church that Paul had not visited before, but he has a desire to visit. And we would talk about that desire except for the fact we have run out of time. So we'll pick up at this point next week. What is the point of today's lesson? Paul was called by God to a specific task, to be the minister to the Gentile community. We, as the Gentile community, benefit from that call. We, as the Gentile community, are called to be full of goodness, 
to be full of knowledge and to be able to teach whoever God brings in front of us. You go, wait a minute. I never went to seminary. I didn't study those big, long words. I don't know all that stuff. But you know, there may come a time when God brings a six-year-old up to you and God says, teach this one. Or he brings a 70-year-old up to you who doesn't know those big words either. And he's, God says, teach this one. You don't know. God will send you the people you need to teach And God will give you the grace to teach them. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have spread your grace to the Gentile community. Thank you that you saved us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.